Welcome to White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life and the true power of what is unseen. Let's discuss dreams, intuition, manifesting, as above, so below, angels, afterlife, the science of consciousness, and other infinite possibilities within and all around you. I hope every episode informs, inspires, and illuminates. So, now the scene is set. Allow the grey rain curtain of this world to roll back and all to turn to silver glass. Let's walk barefoot together on the gentle, glistening sands of white shores to see what mystery lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely on White Shores, a far green country under a swift sunrise. My guest today is Dr. Dean Radin. He's a real superstar and I'm so excited to have him with us and very grateful indeed. I'm sure you know who he is already, but for those new to him, he is Chief Scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, and avid listeners of Like White Shores will know that I never tire of championing the research and work of IONS. He is also Distinguished Professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. For nearly four decades, he has been engaged in consciousness research, and before joining IONS, he held appointments at AT AT&T Bell Laboratories, Princeton University, and several Silicon Valley think tanks, including SRI International, where he worked on a classified program investigating psychic phenomena for the U.S. government. He is the best-selling author of award-winning books, including Real Magic, Entangled Minds, and Supernormal, which should all be required reading for all listeners of White Shores. Hello, Dean. Hello, Teresa. That's a very nice introduction. (laughs) Thank you. I'm glad we've touched base, actually, because we were in contact um, a week or so ago, weren't we, for 50 years of IONS. Uh, For people new to you and the work of IONS. Would you mind just quickly telling us about the work of IONS and why the 50 years was so significant recently? Sure. Well, the Institute of Nordic Sciences was started by the Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who was the sixth man on the moon. And when Edgar was returning to the earth, and as he put it, he had the window seat. He had a, a few minutes uh, to do something other than uh, concentrate on his, his space traveling. Uh, he was gazing out at the earth and went into a contemplative mode, which rapidly turned into a mystical experience where he felt that not only was he connected with everybody on earth, because after all, looking at the earth from space, you realize that everyone we've ever known, all of our history, virtually everything about humanity is on that tiny little ball out there in space. So that sparked a sense of unity with all people. And then that expanded out to eventually include unity with the universe. So this was quite a a pleasant uh, experience that he had. But later, when he was thinking about it, he was also quite shocked that this that this is actually a thing that these kinds of mystical experiences exist. So when he came back to the earth uh, the the following year, which would have been 1973, 
uh, he decided to create an institute which would use the same tools and techniques of science and technology that got him to the moon, but would apply it not to outer space, but to inner space. Because again, the idea of having an experience where you feel literally like you are connected with everything is not taught in engineering schools. It's in fact, it's, it's only if it's taught at all, it's taught as things that people used to believe. And now we're smarter and more sophisticated, but that's not true. These experiences are still very much alive. So that was our origins. And from the beginning, our part of our goal was to always look about 30 years ahead of where science was. And science, of course, is dynamic. It continually changes over time. And if you can see topics that are not yet mainstream, but you can project that they will become mainstream, well, it generally takes 20 or 30 years. So some of the very earliest work that that we funded uh, back in the 70s was uh, mind-body medicine, uh, the values of meditation and and, uh, mental and physical health, uh, the effect of things like forgiveness in, in terms of, again, mental and physical health, and psychic phenomena. So psychic phenomena, of course, have been studied for over a century, uh, but in the, the, in the process of then funding this research, the, the, uh, the idea of or the techniques of remote viewing were, were created. Uh, that was mostly done at SRI International, uh, and remote viewing is really just a euphemism for clairvoyance. But if you're trying to do something in a scientific way, you need to use scientific sounding impressive words. So remote viewing became that word because, partially because it's similar to remote sensing, which is a, a well-known uh, discipline within science and technology, mainly looking at the earth from satellites and sensing what's going on in the environment that way. So remote viewing didn't sound too different from that, and it made it a useful phrase to use. So that that's much of the uh, the the origins then of of ions, and since then uh, we originally were a, a granting institution, and then about twenty to twenty five years ago, when I started there, we created our own in house laboratory, and I've I've been in charge of that since since I've been there now for what twenty two years, something like that. See, people, you are listening to the science of the future. Dean is exactly right here in that what we can't conceive possible now, one day we usually do. So if you want to know about the science of the future, do check out ions and follow them. And especially, I know you're all into mind, body and soul because you listen to this podcast. This is this is where the, the exciting developments are going to take place. We've got scientists and academics researching this in their labs and coming out with consistent data. And I'm right in Dean showing that these experiences that you talk about, these mystical experiences that Edgar Mitchell had are the norm rather than the exception. Well, they're certainly the norm in the sense that uh, we have records going back probably all the way to shamanism where people had these experiences, the way they interpreted them back throughout history have been somewhat different, but the raw experience itself, both of mystical and psychic experiences, has been around as long as there's been history. And it's very commonly reported. So 
the, the reason why we hear about it or don't hear about it has much more to do uh, with uh, the, the current culture. Uh, even today, for example, within uh, cultures like India, the talking about these phenomena is not a big deal. Like everyone expects that these things are true. Um, and, and this is true among scientists and academics too. That is not mm. the case in other countries where there, there may be either scientific or religious constraints to being able to talk about this stuff. But the experience itself, regardless of culture, is pretty uniform across the population and throughout history. And you are Chief Scientist at IONS, which researches this inner world, what is invisible and unseen. And I think you are quite unique, Dean, because you're a scientist who somehow managed this this juggling act and that you are taken very seriously now, increasingly so by your peers, your scientific peers, but also you uh, are able to cross over to popular mainstream as well. Because when you do um, a video, for example, my friend Timothy Schultz recently on Lottery Dreams, your video, the, the, the views went through the roof. And it's quite, an, you know, because often sometimes when scientists are invited onto shows, they aren't able to express in a way that people can relate to what they want to say. But you, you seem to have this ability to have your feet in both worlds. I mean, is that something that's taken, obviously it's taken time to get there, but you kind of know to adapt your message to the audience? I suppose, but maybe it's because in my, my first career, so to speak, was being a classical violinist, which is all about performance. Uh, and I grew up in an artistic family. Nobody in my, in my formative years was involved in science or engineering or anything like that. So I think maybe from early training, I learned that if you're going to convey something to somebody else, you have to do it in a way that's going to appeal to them. And that's why also when I give uh, presentations like webinars or, or talks, I, I try to make it both informative, but also entertaining. And, mm. and if anybody who speaks to, especially to groups knows that uh, you can see when an audience is paying attention and when people start fidgeting and looking elsewhere and looking at their phones, you know, you lost them. And at that point, if, if you had asked them afterwards, you know, what did you think of this talk? They will have no opinion because they weren't paying attention. So I figure if people are going to actually are, are interested enough to pay attention to what somebody is saying. You have to make it both appealing, uh, informative and entertaining all at once. I guess you can sense it and feel it as well, can't you? The collective energy when you are talking to people, oh, yeah. even if it's Line, you, you can kind of sense that fascinating and of course it all falls into place now you being a classical violinist that's your training because musicians inherently they have to balance the logical you know the training the practice the pattern of the notes with the creative at the same time so you've got those two aspects of your brain working in harmony to create something magical yeah and it was even, yeah. even true in doing performances that you could tell if the audience was with you or not Right. There's some, there is some kind of feeling that goes along with it, which I don't have words really to describe, other than there is a sense, there's something like a field that is created between a performer or a speaker and the audience, and that becomes palpable after a while. Well, I'm so grateful you're bringing that, this to the scientific study of, of the noetic, noetic science. It's brilliant. And didn't Einstein play the violin as well? And we know Sherlock Holmes did. Yes. <laughs> 
Yes, they did. <laughs> and I, I think I suspect that the reason why my parents uh, had me start to play the violin when I was five is because they had Einstein in mind. Well, I mean, they weren't too wrong, were they, Dean? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I think they, all parents want their children to become Einstein or some other icon. So they they, picked, yeah. they knew because I'm, I'm not a large person and I'm not particularly muscular that I was yeah. probably not going to be an athlete. So what's the alternative? Well, okay, you can be a musician. <laughs> but the discipline and the rigor as well, and also the creativity, the balance of it, that inner balance is, is amazing. But can we just backtrack again to IONS and the 50 years? There was a research prize as well, um, which was very exciting. Would you mind telling us a bit about the winners of that and why the decision was made for these specific people to, to win the research prize? So this was a $100,000 prize given by Linda G. O'Brien, who has been a donor at, at, uh, for IONS. And she, she wanted to, uh, to create a way, and this is part of an endowment, so we'll be able to do this year after year. She wanted a, a way to bring attention to IONS. Uh, and so her idea was to do a prize. So a hundred thousand dollars, and she didn't she didn't specify exactly how the, what the prize would be about. So we came up with an idea where the prize would be for uh, about consciousness, but in particular uh, proposals of ways of testing without actually doing the test, but just an idea about doing a test that would show that consciousness is more than an emergent property of the brain, and of course that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain is the, the mainstream now within the neurosciences. People assume that you are your brain, full stop. And there's a lot of evidence that suggests that we're, we're maybe partially our, our thoughts and, and sense of, of embodiment are related to the brain. Like there's no question that there are neural correlates of consciousness. But the question is, is the brain generating consciousness. Well, people have been looking at this issue in great detail for a long time now, and the consensus even within science and even within neuroscience today is slowly moving away from the idea that you are literally your brain. It looks like there's more than that. And of course, the kind of research that we've been doing, looking at psychic phenomena, suggests even to a stronger extent that part of us is brain-centric, but part of us is not. So, once science reaches the uh, the point where there's a consensus that we are more than our brain, that will be a very different world. That'll be a revolutionary change in, in assumptions that have been held for a long time. So to accelerate this, the prize said we will give a $100,000 prize to somebody who comes up with an idea about how they think maybe you or consciousness is more than the brain, but the idea has to be testable. So again, this is not a prize to do the test, but only a test that can be tested using scientific methods. So we received 108 applications from around the world. And we we had a, uh, uh, both in IONS and outside, we had a bunch of judges go through all of these and select uh, the top 10. And we went to those top 10 and we asked them for a longer more detailed analysis of what their idea was and how they would go about testing it. And we couldn't decide. Uh, <clears throat> we, we ended up uh, saying, well, we, we don't know which one is the best. There were so many good ones and so many different kinds. We ended up with three. 
So we decided to uh, take the $100,000 and take it in third. So each person would get $33,000, which is still a pretty good prize, especially given it was for an idea. So we we ended up with with three such prizes. One was uh, a project called Seeing Without Eyes, which was by uh, Dr. Alex Gomez Marin, a Spanish uh, physicist who turned into a biologist. Uh, and his idea was that there's a lot of people who report that there's something like extraocular vision, the ability to see without the physical eyes. Uh, it is not yet clear, although there's been a lot of interest and in research on these kinds of ideas for a very long time. Uh, and you can see it even on in movies now, documentaries, and on places like Facebook where people report that they've been training themselves after uh, wearing a blindfold to be able to identify objects and colors and so on. Uh, So what Alex has been doing is studying a person who is blind, who wears a blindfold in addition to being blind, and then has a shield between his face and an object that, that he's asked to try to identify. And the results so far have been quite promising. So I've seen some of the of the videos he has shared privately with me, and and it's remarkable if that actually is true because it suggests that there is a way for people to be able to see something without at least without their eyes. Uh, in most cases, they're using their hands, just their hands. So the idea of uh, of dermal vision. And then similar words like that, similar phrases have been around a long time, as I said, uh, but very, very little systematic scientific research is taking place. So Alex's idea was, well, maybe this extraocular vision is real. Maybe uh, there's something that extends from the body uh, that allows us to see. And this is very similar to an idea that Rupert Sheldrake talks about, an an extraocular vision or extra, extra, I forget the term. Wow. Is that in, and this is when you're awake, not not dreaming or yeah. something like that. Yeah, fully awake and, and you see things without being blindfolded or if you're blind and blindfolded both. So we made a joke about that. that uh, oftentimes in science, you try to create a double blind condition. Well, <laughs> so we had one. So the person was blind and they're wearing blindfold. Wow. Wow. So that, so that was one of the, the winning... Uh, proposals because that can be tested using yes. rigorous scientific means. And, and we're hoping, of course, that Alex continues to, to do those studies. So the wow. second idea that, that won is called, the title was Conscious Agents and the Subatomic World by Don Hoffman, uh, who's an emeritus professor from University of California at Irvine, and his team and two other people on his team. And the idea that that Don has been promoting is that uh, kind of like we live in the matrix. We we live in a computer simulation. It's much more sophisticated than that, but generally that's the idea that we we what we are what we perceive with our eyes and our senses is a very very thin slice of what's out there. That's what a philosopher might call naive reality. That is everyday reality. But through science, we know that things are much much more complicated both in the world of the very small and the very large. So uh, Don's idea is that uh, working with uh, mathematical structures, 
One's called an amplitudehedra, and the other is decorated permutations. These are both abstract mathematical ideas that they might be more significant than the traditional everyday idea about space-time. And of course, space-time is already an elaboration on earlier ideas about space and time, right? Einstein brought about the idea of space-time. So now what Don is saying is that through mathematics, you have suggestions that there's something even more fundamental than space-time using this mathematics. So he, he and his team have made a prediction that if you start from pure mathematics, you can start to develop a way to describe uh, the the deep physical world, including things like quarks and gluons. You can you can create those basically out of the mathematics. And this is if you step back from this, it's part of of a of a long term idea where if all that exists is consciousness, you go from philosophical idealism and assume that everything is just consciousness, then the question is, well, where did the physical world come from? And so what Don is doing is basically in that direction. He's saying, if you start from something that is pure awareness, how do you get a physical world out of that? And so you can do it through mathematics. That's the claim. And his model is very interesting. And more importantly, it's testable. So he's testing it not in the laboratory, but through mathematical uh, means and so that that's an interesting idea. Fascinating. I mean, the theme seems to be that you're that, that you went for ones that really could be tested in the lab. That's what I'm I'm, I'm seeing rather than move it beyond theory. Right. And and the third one, you can't you can't leave us hanging. I've got to know what the yeah. third one is. So the third one, the title was "Detecting Deviations from Random Activity as Indications of Consciousness Beyond the Brain." And that was by Dr. Wolfhart Janu and his colleagues uh, from uh, Germany, I believe, but also from other places. He has a bunch of colleagues. And their idea is that uh, if there's some aspect of consciousness that extends beyond the brain and it interacts with the physical world, then you can use physical detectors to, to measure those effects. And so what they're proposing is to use a variation on a random number generator they call it organized random event generators to detect those physical disturbances that are associated in some way with consciousness. And so they had two series of experiments that they had proposed to see if this was true. One of them involved uh, groups doing rituals where uh, everyone's mind would get on the same wavelength, so to speak, and then see if that would be correlated with changes in the random number generators. And the other one, which we thought was actually a little bit more interesting was to put the random generators in either an ICU in a hospital or in hospice to see if during important events, like the person dying, uh, would that would that also cause changes in the in, phys- in physical environment as detected by the random number generators? And one of the reasons that is an interesting environment to work in is because uh, people who uh, uh, whether it's doctors or nurses or family members who are in the presence of somebody who is dying, of course, there's a lot of emotion involved in it, but they also oftentimes will report unusual physical sensations. They'll see things that they hadn't expected to see, all sorts of things suggesting that there might be something physically changing in the environment. So it's, it, it's a vulnerable state, 
And so uh, you'd have to get permission to be able to do all this, but they look like they have permission from hospice. It's not so clear about ICUs, but their uh, family members are okay with it. And if the dying person is okay with it, if they have the ability to talk, uh, then they can do these experiments. And it'll be quite interesting because, uh, as I said, that there's a great deal of anecdotal information out there and stories that something energetic that's unusual happens in the process of a person who is dying. And maybe that can be detected. Incredible. This is incredible. So I, for the for the year that they, they are awarded the prize money, will you be mentoring them or, or you know, following them? Do you know what this reminds me of? Dragon's Den. <laughs> I don't know if you have that in the States. We have it here in the UK. It's where there are these like really big business people and people come and pitch their ideas and they decide whether they're going to invest. I don't know if you have it in the States. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, here it's called uh, Shark Tank. Oh, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Whether you've kind of done it for the for the mystical, really. Um, but you, do you mentor them? Uh, I don't expect that we will, no. Now, these, okay. these are all senior investigators. And uh, at, at this point, they're not necessarily going to go ahead and use the money to do these experiments. They might, uh, but that's up to them. And so we're now in the process of uh, developing what kind of a grant we're going to do or what kind of prize uh, for 2024. And we don't know if, if it'll be the same or if we'll actually do grants. We could do that too, to actually do experiments. So we're in the process of deciding how the prize should look for next year. Okay. So it will be running next year and, and hopefully ongoing. This is very exciting yeah. for people around the world to be able to communicate with you. Do you give feedback for the people who don't get through? Or is there no time for that? Uh, we, we gave feedback for the top 10 People, but I don't think we did for the 108. It would have been too much time and effort yeah. to be able to do that. I completely understand. Um, Dean, currently the, the research at Irons, as I say, I follow it and I see what you're doing and, and all these studies coming out. You personally, I know scientists are supposed to be impartial, and of course you are, but it, what is currently what you're most excited about in the research at Irons that you're doing? Well, we, we have a, a team, so we're all doing all kinds of different things. Uh, for me personally, what I'm working on right now is, uh, is a, a kind of hybrid test where for many years now I've been uh, working on an outstanding problem in physics, which has to do with the quantum observer effect. And it is one of the unsolved, very important problem in physics and I developed an experimental way of testing it, which suggests that consciousness does play a role in, uh, in the behavior of the quantum world. And by projection, it plays a role in the physical world. So that is, it's called the consciousness collapse interpretation of quantum mechanics. So that I'm continuing that in this project I'm working on now, but I'm adding a new twist to it. And that is that uh, to test people who are particularly good they believe in manipulating aspects of the physical world. And the people I'll be working with are using traditional esoteric magical practices, and in particular, the practice of using sigils to, uh, to do magical spells. Oh, this is very Doctor Strange, isn't it? This is <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. I mean, it, it, it is, uh, it, it, as I wrote a blog on this, which is on the, the IONS website, uh, and also a, a new organization called RENCEP, which is the Research Network for the Study of Esoteric Practices. Uh, 
they the, the idea here is that uh, esoteric practices recast into the term of what we would call magic. Uh, magical practices have been around forever. And, and very similar to our ideas about psychic phenomena, these are things that have never gone away. Sometimes they, be, they go sub rosa and they don't t- people don't talk about it. But people have been using these techniques forever. Some claim that they get quite good at it. And, and yet science usually is reluctant to get involved with things like magic and psychic phenomena because it's not mainstream. But science mm. is really good at studying things. I mean, that's one of the reasons why our technology is advanced to the way that it is, because you can, if you're clever enough, you can figure out how to study virtually anything. So why mm-hmm. are we not studying magical practices? Well, because it's kind of taboo. I've, I've never really cared that things are taboo. I find it simply interesting. So I will use people who use uh, this magical practice of sigil magic uh, as participants in an experiment that is addressing a fundamental issue in physics. This is mind opening. It's just wonderful stuff. Thank you so much, Dean. And it's interesting, actually, you say it's not mainstream, but if you look at like popular culture, media and movies at the moment, so much interest, isn't there, in the multiverse and and psychic abilities and everything. It's it's just, it's like movie directors are often quite visionary, aren't they? Kind of sensing where the future's going. Yeah. You must be loving that, that there's so much interest right now. Yeah, so th- this is definitely mainstream from a popular perspective, but I'm talking yeah. about from a scientific perspective. It's very difficult. It's not impossible, but it is difficult to publish this kind of work in top-tier mainstream journals. It's getting there, though, isn't it? And IONS is leading the way. <laughs> it's getting there. Drip, drip, drip. It will happen. Yeah. Of that, I have no idea. Just a quick question, and I feel really guilty because I know you're so busy with, and it's your precious time, but the multiverse, which is so interesting. What are your thoughts on that and, and potential selves and all that, which is so current at the moment, as I say, in mainstream culture? Mm-hmm. Well, my thing is that if, if we have all these potential selves and we put equal passion in all of them, wouldn't that lead to some kind of in- incoherence and... I just would love your thoughts on the multiverse, really. Well, the multiverse is a little bit like string theory and other popular theories in physics in that it is, at this point, still purely a theory. And theories are sometimes very powerful. They sometimes, like Einstein's theories, turned out to be true, even though they were quite revolutionary. Uh, But a theory is not worth very much until you can find a way to actually test it. And so far, the multiverse concept has not been tested. It may not be testable. And the same goes for string theory. And the same goes for lots of things at the leading edge of of science that remain at a theoretical scale. So my my sense of it then is I become much more interested in a theory if if an experiment is done to show that the theory is actually correct. Because up until that point, and of course, I'm I'm saying this from an empiricist point of view, because that's what I do. I test things. And so if somebody comes up with a theory that explains everything in the universe, my reaction to it is, oh, that, that's interesting. Maybe that's even true. Can you think of a way of testing it? If the answer is no, then I put that into my bin of possible stories about things that might be true. But I don't yeah. otherwise pay a lot of attention to it because maybe it's true and maybe it isn't. Spoken like a true scientist, Dean, a visionary one, but a true scientist. Thank you. And before I ask you to tell me um, 
where people can find out about you and IONS. Can I just ask you three questions so that when people do find out about you, find out more about you and IONS, they've got these images in their mind. I think that kind of helps. First of all, if you could be uh, an animal or an insect or a reptile, what would it be and why? Does it have to be one that we know about? No, it can be anything you like, <laughs> Well, it would probably be something more like, uh, not exactly a dragon, but something like a dragon, an animal that, uh, at least from a story perspective, is clearly a conscious being, but it also has magical qualities. So that okay. maybe that's uh, like anywhere between Tinkerbell and a little person in the forest and a dragon, one of those kinds of creatures. Wonderful. And I have asked you this before. It would be interesting to see if your perspective has changed. If you could be a musical instrument, I'm wondering if it will be violin. What would it be and why? It would actually be a banjo. It would be a bluegrass banjo. And and the the reason, yeah, the reason is that uh, I I played the violin up, up through graduate school and I decided at that point that I'd rather be a scientist than a musician. But during that transition, period, I started playing, I, I had listened to bluegrass, which I just love. And uh, I started playing the fiddle, right? You can trans transfer from classical violin into bluegrass fiddle pretty easily. And that was easy. But I, I just love the sound of the blue of the of the banjo, the bluegrass through, you know, a scrug style three finger picking. And I was able to pick that up very quickly. I was I was able to play almost at a professional level within a month or two. And so there's just something about the the sound of it and the speed and everything. And also, it's much, much, much easier than playing the violin, especially the classical violin. So this is a way of being just pure enjoyment with music, as opposed to if you're playing the classical violin, to play at a level where other people want to hear you requires about an hour or more practice every single day. Whereas yeah. for a banjo, that is not the case, at least not for me. <laughs> so, so far we have a banjo playing dragon. Love it. Love that image. Yeah. And finally, I, again, I've asked you before, but I would love if there's been a perspective shift. Um, and please don't say Spock like you did last time. If you could be a character in Lord of the Rings or an object, what would it be and why? Oh, I would be the <laughs> ring. No question. You weren't the ring last time. I think you said Gandalf. Oh, well, yeah, Gandalf would be good too. But if if it could be an object, yeah, it would be the ring. It would be a definitely. Why? Um, I guess because it's a magical object, right? Yeah. It, it does all sorts of interesting things. Well, that would that sounds like it would be interesting to be. Okay, so we have a banjo playing dragon with the ring of power on one of its paws. Fantastic. There you go. And please, could you give details for how people can find out about you, Dean, and also IONS? Okay, so IONS' website is noetic.org. That's N-O-E-T-I-C dot org. And that has gobs of information about the organization, about our science team. It has our biographies, a bunch of stuff. And it also says says what experiments we're currently working on. Awesome. And does it point to your website? Do you have a website or is it all contained within within IONS now? No, I have a separate website uh, for, for me, which is deanradin.com. 
straightforward and simple. Thank you, Dean, for your precious time. And I truly appreciate all you are and do, and IONS too. It's, it's, It's wonderful to follow you. And I've loved the fact that I'm in touch with you. And last seven years have just been so informative and illuminating for me following IONS and all the amazing scientists there, including yourself. Thank you. And thank you. We appreciate it. from my heart and soul for being here and walking beside me in spirit on white shores. Sensitive, kind, compassionate souls like you who see beyond the material are needed more than ever today to help this earth heal and evolve. If you have any questions, stories or insights to share, I absolutely love hearing from you and aim to reply to everyone in due course. My website is www.theresachung.com. My contact email is angeltalk710 at aol.com. And you can message me via my Instagram handle, the Teresa Chung, as well as my Facebook and Twitter author pages. Until we meet again on these white shores, keep being amazing spiritual you, sending my eternal love and gratitude. <laughs>